0: Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, Episode 13, Mildred Pierce. Super 70 is a podcast meant to play along with the film we are discussing. You don't have to though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will, of course, be using the Criterion Collection Blu-ray issued last year. Mildred Pierce is currently a miniseries on HBO, and this podcast will not pertain to that we're going to do this a little differently since there seems to be a lot of delay in between the different versions of Mildred Pierce. So if you wait until you first see the Warner Brothers logo pop up and then press play now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. I remember being an impressionable youth once and listening to a lot of John Lennon and reading everything he wrote and listening to every interview he gave and he said something somewhere once when he was defending writing this unbelievably offensive song called Woman is the N-Word of the World. It was something Yoko said and Lennon wrote a song about it. I won't go that far. But I do think that the history of the world is the history of the oppression of women. And Mildred Pierce is all about the oppression of women. I remember watching this for the first time about 15 years ago and just marveling at how fucked up the world was in 1945. The sexism was blatant Because at the time, it wasn't blatant. And what this film says about gender roles in America after the war is damning. And we're going to go through it, scene by scene, and see what it says. For some people, the opening of Mildred Pierce is very discombobulated. There are things going on, and for some people, going places, and you're not sure what is exactly happening, and you're meant to be discombobulated. You're meant to wonder what is going on and the timing and the perspective changes. When you see Monty get shot, you don't even know who he is and you won't see him again for another 40 minutes. And why does he say Mildred's name? Well, this is the 1940s and what is the most influential film of the 1940s? The Citizen Kane. So Monty saying Mildred is effectively a tool that derives from Rosebed which Charles Foster Kane says right before he dies at the opening of Citizen Kane. You then spend the next two hours trying to figure out what Rosebud means. It's the same here. It appears Monty died, saying Mildred, so instantly we think Mildred killed her husband. And it's not so much that she killed him. We know that she killed him. But what we don't know is why. And that is what we're going to spend the next two hours trying to figure out. Why did Mildred kill him? And so, for most of the audience, the twist ending came very fast, and they didn't see it coming. The other nod to Citizen Kane that went real fast was that series of dissolves that took you from the credits to the outside of the house and to the inside of the house to see Monty get shot. That's right out of the introduction to Xanadu from the beginning of Kane. So you go through a series of establishing shots, all of them in a fog, the external of the beach house. Then the external of a restaurant on a pier, and then again, it's foggy. Why all the fog to obscure your vision? You can't make out exactly what is going on. And this is our first indication that the story we are about to see is not going to be very clear, not until the very end. This is the amazingly adept Joan Crawford. I am both proud and embarrassed to say that Joan Crawford is from Texas. She was born in San Antonio in March of 1905, and her real name was Lucille Fay LeSueur. Her parents were separated by the time she was born, and by the time she was a teenager, she had three stepfathers. At one time, she was actually homeless, but she did commit to dancing lessons, and she moved to Hollywood to get into a chorus line like millions of other girls since then. And she made it. Her first film was 1925, and she was such a good dancer that MGM kept casting her in dancing films throughout the silent era, each one getting more and more developed as a real role, not just some girl dancing in the background. Louis Mayer changed her name because he said it sounded too much like Sewer. By the early 1930s, she was a household name, starring in a ton of films like Grand Hotel with Greta Garbo. She developed a very loyal following, but as the war started and the war went on, she past the age where most Hollywood movie stars become useful to big studios. She saw it coming, but it was still insulting when MGM decided in 1943 not to renew her contract. She was 38 years old and everyone thought her career was over. That's pretty much how Hollywood works. Now, pay attention to the tone that we're going to open with because it's going to shift in a while and you're going to see a dramatic change in lighting. Obviously this is set at night. The house was set at night but even inside the house it's like there's no other lights but lamps and those lamps are sparse. Here we're in a nightclub Wally's nightclub and the lighting is very similar. Once we get out of the police station you'll see the shift that I'm talking about. When we're in the police station you'll see even the lighting is, is darker there than anywhere else in the film. Maybe that's because it's where people try to hide the truth. And paradoxically, where some people are trying to uncover the truth. Mind you, this scene does not make Mildred out to look very good. It opens with her contemplating suicide on the pier. Suicide, which you'll see later, she contemplates to save her daughter's life. A life for life, you could say. That's how it's played. It looks like she wants to jump due to regret, but later you find out what's going on and now it looks like if she kills herself, it'll help Vita. It'll look like guilt and it'll seal the deal. Considering Monty is dead and she knows Monty is dead, what is she doing in this bar? So everything here can be interpreted both ways. It can be against Mildred or against Vita, And everything you see for the next hour and a half is going to look that way. It'll look like Mildred did it until the very end. However, what you'll also see is that Mildred is still guilty. She's still at fault, no matter if she pulled the trigger or not. She still did it. She might as well have done it, no matter the truth. Because she is guilty of far, far worse than Vita could possibly be guilty of. And that's how fucked up this is. Retrospectively, it seems like a great blunder for MGM to let Crawford go. It's like looking back at the Red Sox trading Babe Ruth to the Yankees in terms of a future payout. Crawford was, at the time, probably one of the greatest working actors, and she had the ability to survive. She survived the transition from sound, she learned acting on the job, and practically everyone who knew her or worked with her said she knew everyone on set, she knew everyone's job, and she knew exactly how everything worked. She was a professional in every sense of the word. She took her notes, she hit her marks, she set her lines with her notes, and she delivered, every single time. And she was worshipped by millions of women for being their connection to all of this melodrama. Watch this deft maneuver Mildred does with her drink. Curtiz doesn't bother cutting, he just lets it happen on the outside of the frame. A lesser director would cut away and center on the action in an unneeded emphasis but not Curtiz. He's in his prime now. Look at this room. Shadows everywhere, no light. Then in the next shot you'll see light and it's like she's running from it. She runs from the truth. This is Jack Carson who is mostly forgotten about now but who most people in the 1940s knew as a fairly distinguished character actor. According to IMDB, and we know IMDB is never wrong, he came to Hollywood in 1937 to work for RKO as an extra, and then moved to Warner Brothers in 1941. He wasn't in anything you know until Mildred Pierce, and he wasn't in anything that you know after, but at the time, he was a very well-known working actor that most filmgoers would have recognized. He was married four times and divorced three. Unfortunately, he died way too young. I think if he lived another 10 or 20 years, he would have seen amazing things out of him. I showed this film to my uncle, who was 73, and he recognized Jack Carson right away and even remembered he had a TV show in the 50s. Look how dark this is. And it is right in line with Mildred's mink coat as far as the chiaroscuro lighting is concerned. All throughout this commentary, whether I mention him or not, I'm going to constantly refer to this amazing article in the film genre book titled Notes on Film Noir which was written by director and screenwriter Paul Schrader in 1986. Schrader does a fantastic job defining what is film noir and he very distinctly identifies the stylistics of film noir. For instance, everything is lit for night even if it takes place during the day. There are of course some differences in Mildred Pierce but as the film goes on you'll see an increasing number of day settings lit for night. He also identifies oblique and vertical lines. And if you look at the beach house, they are everywhere, especially in Mildred's mink coat. The most common elements of film noir are going to be that it's dark. It's going to have these preferred vertical lines. You'll also see weird angles of shadows like trapezoids and triangles. And just look at these series of shots here. Look at the ceiling. Schrader says t is the greatest example of this, but you'll also see it in most all film noirs. It's the height of the influence of German expressionism, which hit Hollywood with the influence of German silent films in the 20s. Films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and pretty much everything by Fritz Lang in the 1930s. You can't overstate this influence. Just look at this shot here, and the one right after it. The flickering light puts a certain evil into everything that's going on here. The lines across the staircase in the background, letting you know that Wally is in deep at this point. Schrader also says the actors in the setting are often given equal lighting emphasis. This means the central character will be standing in the shadow and this will create a hopeless mood when the environment and the lead actor are equated. You will also see this in Mildred Pierce. Just when Wally found Monty's body and declined to answer the phone, he was lit the same as the set around him. Schrader also says you will see compositional tension in film noirs opposed to physical action. Yes, you saw Monty get shot, but you didn't see what led up to it, and though Wally is running around here like a chicken with his head chopped off, there's nothing for him to do except run around. There's no one to shoot, no one to punch, etc. The scene moves around an actor rather than the actor control the scene. This shows how almost every subject in the film noir cannot control the narrative of the story. It's out of control. Think like uh, Detour, 1944. So Monty dies, Wally runs, and even Vita, as you see, walks through one side of the set and off to another. Very few car chases, very few action-packed moments. Everything is dramatically paced, but there is very little follow-up to the tension. Schrader also notes, film noir has water everywhere. We're at a beach house, after all. And you'll see all the evil that takes place in the film noir pretty much takes place at this beach house. Next, Schrader says you'll see a lot of romantic narration and you'll need to pay attention to what they're narrating about. Mildred Pierce opens up with a murder and what the hell are we watching a story about her and Vita? Why? Why is Vita the focus and not Monty? It's Monty that winds up dead. That should put you onto something. Notice the ceilings in the shot here. That's another influence from Kane. The last thing that Schrader notes as style is as complex chronological order. He specifically cites Mildred Pierce, although this one is more or less bookended by a present interrogation. But this convoluted time sequence is supposed to confuse you and lead you to a notion at the same time. The how, Schrader says, is always more important than the what. That is key to understanding Mildred Pierce. It doesn't matter, really, that Monty dies. He doesn't die in the book, by the way. And we'll get to that later. But the what in Mildred Pierce is going to be more important. More important than the why, even. Because we find out why Monty is shot, but it really doesn't matter anymore. What matters is Mildred's relationship with Vita. Without that, there is no movie. Monty could be removed from the script, but Mildred and Vita, they have to be there. This is a film about them, not about any of the clueless idiot men around them. Schrader hits the nail on the head when it comes to that. Now when we get to the police station, there's a lot going on. First thing you notice, it's dark, like really dark. Like someone needs to cut a check for the police department to pay the lights bill, kind of dark. Even half this cop's face is in shadow. And when we go to the next room, I want you to pay very close attention to what's on the walls of the police station. There's a lot of ambiance going around here. Notice it's about 1.30 in the morning. The camera pushes in and then it opens to the left. And we see Ida, who we will meet later. But what's Ida doing here at all? This, This is a red herring. Ida has no place here. She's merely meant to confuse us. Now watch this camera pan to the left to meet Wally, then right. Why did the camera bother to move at all? to confuse us further then the camera pushes in on Mildred again for the second time then we cut away then we cut back after the clock and the camera pushes in Mildred for a third time do you get what Curtis is getting at here Mildred is the guilty party we see her closely examined three times why keep doing that because we are emphasizing her guilt and again it doesn't matter who killed Monty she's guilty not of the murder of Monty, necessarily, although tangentially she's responsible for that too. But her crimes against the state are much, much worse. That's Bruce Bennett there as Mildred's first husband, Bert. He's been in a ton of stuff. The Treasure of Sierra Madre, Sahara, and other film noirs like Dark Passage. He worked longer than most and he only passed away in 2007, so he gave it a run for sure. This next scene when Mildred goes in for interrogation is where I want you to pay attention to the walls. If you notice in the background here there's top of a flagpole which we passed when Mildred came into the police station. There's nothing really out of place about that. You'd expect to find one there. Look how antsy she is. Nervous. Wow. And look how broad her shoulders are. Shoulder pads to the nines. Okay try to check out the photos on the wall in this next office. There's gonna be some standard photos you see here of policemen but what do you have in that huge case on the left? A huge metal case. Take a look at it. Yes, policemen get medals but that's a ton of medals. You only rack up that number when you've been in combat. Now, as the camera moves around you're gonna see some of these photos closer up and not all of them are policemen in uniform. Many of them Are military photos and as the scene goes on you'll see other pictures come into view and a striking amount of them will have not so much to do with police work but a lot to do with the war. There's even one photo of an airplane with a pilot standing next to it. Notice by the way that there are two lamps in on this office but no one thinks to turn the overhead light on. Anyway what's up with the war pictures? Well this is 1945 after all the year of victory. I know this seems kind of far removed from the film, but it's really not. The war has a lot to do with this film and what is happening before, during, and after the war. In a way, it's the most disturbing part. The timeline here, though, is not that difficult. The First World War ended in 1918, then we had this period of prosperity called the Roaring Twenties. The stock market crashed in 1929, which led to the Great Depression. That ended, generally speaking, about six months after the Second World War began in Europe, roughly about January 1940. America entered the war December 1941, and by then we were in a boom. Look at all the pictures in this shot here. Almost everyone had a job due to the Great demand from the Allies for war material. Then America enters after Pearl Harbor and we fight until Germany capitulates in May of 1945 and then Japan capitulates in August of the same year. Mildred Pierce comes out in November, just in time for what? Thanksgiving. You guessed it. You've got a clear view of the wall here and you can clearly see a military history of some individual here maybe this guy, and there are many people in this office, so it's not just this guy. So I'm thinking there are several vets working in this police station. This would not be unheard of in 1945 or the year after or the decade after or four decades after. There were, no shit, 16 million men and women in uniform serving during the Second World War. Today, if you saw a service member in uniform, it looks odd. By the time Mildred Pierce came out, it would be the norm. In fact, by 1980, the participation of service would peak at about two-thirds the population. The war was ever-present in the minds of the time, and it plays a big role in Mildred Pierce. See the Holy Grail in the background there? Don't you get it by being truthful? Or is that a trophy, like an award? you get for telling the truth to the authority figure. Something to think about. Now here comes the big dissolve and you're going to see this dark, dark place go away for a while and you're going to be bombarded by light. And The shoulder pads are going to go away and you're going to see Joan Crawford's honest-to-goodness natural shoulders. And we see day for the first time and what are we centering on? What is most important in American society, regardless of the time period? Property. And that's why we're at Wally's real estate office. Coincidentally, it's where Bert worked for a while. So the murder mystery is going to take a back seat for about an hour, though the darkness will rear its ugly head from now and again to make sure you're paying attention. You can all laugh now that you see Joan Crawford in a kitchen with an apron, talking about how satisfying it was to be a stay-at-home mom. That's what we call them now. Back then, they were just mothers. All mothers stayed at home. It's what moms did. Well, some of them. Some say that Mildred Pierce is actually two different films. The first one is a daytime woman's melodrama that only woman would be interested in. The second one is a male-dominated film noir that shows a very dark world. The original screenplay for this was written by a very capable screenwriter named Catherine Tooney. However, the producers of the film wanted more of a film noir slant and asked Ranald MacDougall to do a lot of rewriting. This he did, so much so that Tooney removed her name from the film. But this is a movie written by a woman about a woman. That's important to keep in mind here. Altogether, six men wrote some version of James M. Cain's novel for the screen. Some would say that the vision of the screenplay was controlled or contorted by a man. This contortion can be seen in the beginning of the film when you're thrust into a murder mystery, but then as Mildred starts to tell her story, you're pulled out rather dramatically. The lights in the movie are suddenly overpowering, and instead of a dark police station, you're in a super bright kitchen. And as the story goes on, you'll see, scene by scene, it starts to descend back into this darkness until you're back in the police station again. Then it will alternate back to a bright past, but only for a little while, and it won't be nearly as light. And of course, the film will go slowly to a really dark tone, which it will stay stay in for for the remainder of the film. This dichotomy of the film, the two films that we're watching, are not just shown in light tones, but they're also displayed in the script using the standards of the time. The story itself is not called Mildred Berrigan, the name of her second husband, but Mildred Pierce, the name of her first husband. And this indicates the film's judgment that she never should have gotten a divorce in the first place. Mommy Dearest here mixing batter to make a cake. Try to withhold your laughter. I'm not going to suggest that Joan Crawford never baked a cake, but I will guess that she didn't ever bake one unless she absolutely had to. You know, like if she had a gun to her head or something. But this scene, like every scene in Mildred Pierce, and I wish every scene in this movie, this this has a point. Mildred tells us that all she will do, right, she will do everything anything for her kids. And by the end of the scene, she proves it by pushing her husband out of the house that he built and paid for. In the novel, Bert was a real estate agent who developed a neighborhood and built this house, a a modest house, according to James Kane. And we could say that it might be enough for Mildred. She seems to have everything she wants, except another oven to bake another pie, to make more money, so she can buy things for Veda, so she can be loved, so she can go on living, so she can make more money, so she can buy things for Veda. Mildred lives for others. She lives through others. She practically has no life for herself. And the minute she threatens to have a life for herself through Monty, what happens? Her daughter dies. So scratch that. Back to living for others. Now this seemed particularly cruel to me because in the novel this scene takes place in about 1932 and if you follow the ages of the girls and backtrack from 1945 when the murder takes place, maybe this scene takes place here in in 1939. I'm not trying to be semantic here, it just seems to me that Bert is out of work during the Great Depression when about a third of working men were out of work and it wasn't actually that uncommon. So, Mildred is being a bit more than obsessive about her daughters here, she's being a fucking bitch. You're in the way of the daughters. Get out of my house. And we fall for it. We think Bert's an ass because he doesn't even want to tell his kids goodbye. Well, what kind of man is he? And he doesn't even fight with her about it. He just goes trotting off to Mrs. Bonhoeffer or Biederman or Bofo or whatever the fuck her name is. And we think, well, if our spouse said... I'm going to go hang out with this chick because she's more fun than you. The response would be go and don't let the door hit you on the way out because this is 1945. That's not what the reaction people had. The The reaction was that she has no proof that Bert is cheating. Bert is out of work like everybody else and she just needs to lay the fuck off. It's like Walter White told his wife, I need you to Climb down out of my asshole for just a little bit. My God, the entire deal with the car, I don't think the film emphasized this at all. Bert took the car in the book and it was almost like a death sentence for Mildred. She had to go and find a job in California without a car and it was almost impossible. L.A. had no subway back then, no public transit to speak of. It was a chapter about how she didn't have the car and she needed the car and she had to con Bird into giving it to her by basically getting him drunk and stealing the keys. I'm not making this shit up. And if that was left in the movie, I mean, I don't think it was ever shot, but if it was left in the film and everybody would be throwing popcorn at the screen and screaming, go home, you ungrateful bitch and everything else under the sun. There was an author somewhere, and you'll have to forgive me because I don't remember which one, but he described the opening of Mildred Pierce as a false suture because it stitches together this beginning and ending, not with a murder mystery necessarily. It's not who killed Monty Berrigan. We know Mildred did it. At least she is more responsible than, say, Vita. But No, the real question is why did Mildred kill Monty? Even the poster for Mildred had Crawford holding the smoking gun and asking, don't tell what she did. So the entire marketing campaign was predicated on the idea that Mildred was guilty of murder. And why? Because of the social implications of how she was mothering her kids. You've heard how the sins of the father will be reflected upon the son. Well, in this case, the sins of the mother will reflect upon the daughter. Vita in her new dress. Wicked. If you saw Kay carry that box across the room, she's unpacking this dress, and what is the dress? It's a product, and if you think about it, Vita and Kay are treated not as children, but as products, and parenthood is a kind of substitute for having a job, and the child is seen as a widget created by a mother, much like that dress is created by someone in a factory, and Vita hates the dress, and Mildred overhears this, and she's hurt. Now, my mother or my wife would tear me a new asshole as a child or as a husband who spoke to them like that, but not Mildred. She's extremely submissive, and what does that do to Vita? It makes her extremely dominant, and it's about to get worse. The family pictures are supposed to show you the happy Pierce household. For some reason, Mildred's not happy with the Pierce household. She indicates this when she grabs the gun. Where is the gun? Not in the dresser with her clothes. That's too womanly. It's in a desk. Probably Bert. It's a man's desk, obviously. And while Wally walks in and commits one shameless faux pas after another, I'll tell you about this study done in 1943 on maternal overprotection. And it talked about the power-hungry mother that made maternity into a disease. The mother would be either submissive, or dominant, and this would produce the opposite in the child. And if you watch either the scene before this or the scene after, you can see that Vita and Mildred are in this type of relationship. Mildred rejects her children simply because she is not at home. And if you catch it from the beginning, the minute Bert walks into the kitchen, what does he say? That she's going to spoil the children and it's going to be bad. So this is the father always right syndrome. And she dumped him not because he was sleeping around with Mrs. Biederhofer, but because he was right about the kids. Don't get confused by Mrs. Beterhofer, by the way. She's a ruse. She's not to blame here. Mildred is. She's the enemy. And now, at this point, why is Mildred alone? Because her husband is off at Mrs. Beterhofer's, and where is Mr. Beterhofer? After all, she is a Mrs., right? You guessed it. So... Mr. Biederhofer, he's off to war at this time in cinema. This would have been an obvious point to make, but we kind of miss it today. This isn't the only film. There are other films that are about the war, but then are not about the war. You're going to see that films are not about the war, but are about the war for the next 10 years. It's a traumatic event that takes decades for Hollywood to get over. The war is real. But hidden. And it explains why the men who are here, the ineffectual Bert, the effeminate Monty, and the unscrupulous lowlife Realtor Wally, are pretty much the only men around, if you can call them men. All the good men are gone, or dead. And that's the reality of the situation. Can you imagine if a man came on this strong to a woman today? He'd be on Twitter and the cops would be called and he'd be taken away for sexual assault and it wouldn't be wrong. Crawford is absolutely stunning here and the insinuation is that she's nude under that robe. If you watch Wally's eyes, he's constantly looking her up and down like a piece of meat. And finally, he's handed his hat. Not a felt fedora hat, that's for a gentleman. No, it's a straw hat. It's for bachelors who like to party look how he's just feeling her up and she's acting like she's used to it it's kind of sick if you want to see another movie with different mother-daughter dynamics really different ones than what we're about to get into then you should see since you went away 1944 it's not nearly as fucked up as Mildred Pierce it still handles these war issues the absence of paternal authority for example and what do you do when your man is not around? Well, you survive, like Mildred does. She and Ida, who you'll meet later, will effectively be forced to become successful. So there's tons of shit here. I, I can't even fathom the scene. First, Kay cried herself to sleep because she misses her father, but not Vita. She's reading fashion magazines, so... Second, she, she heard everything that was going on downstairs with Wally. She heard Wally try to get into her mother's pants. And she really, if you look at it, she really didn't care. She actually wanted her mother to submit to Wally because if she did, then the Pierces would have hitched their train to a successful real estate agent. And that would be ultimately mean what? They would get to move out of this dump of a house that Bert built. So you see, Vita is not a fan of her father at all. Not really. She doesn't cry over him. And she looks down on him for seeing a woman who looks like she is, what does Vita say, distinctly middle class. This family is broke, and Vita calls Mrs. Beterhofer middle class. And this is the first time that we get a hint that something fucked up is going on. Vita puts her head on her mother's breast, and Mildred gets all mushy and promises all these materialistic things to her daughter. Then she pats her daughter on the butt. And that's not too out of whack, but it's the combination of these things. And watch Mildred effectively put the move on Vita here and watch Vita's reaction. And look how broken hearted Mildred is. And now look for Vita's face It's revealed in the light. She's happy. Why? Because she's just rejected her mother. Why would that bring her happiness? Because her rejection is her exercise of power. What power does she have over her mother? The power of love? Certainly. What kind of love? That's the question. Here's another trick that's pulled right out of Citizen Kane. This montage that packs up several days worth of experiences into about a minute and enables the story to move on without adding too much screen time. We get to the point. Why do people want experience? What are they really saying? This whole... This whole thing, this whole montage, it points to the present in the novel, which was that Mildred's working-class background was a source of embarrassment. We'll get a little of it later when Vita finds the uniform, but as you watch this, notice that she's embarrassed to even go look for a job. It's a genuine stigma, and this is at a time in which a lot of Americans, I'd say most Americans, were in Mildred's shoes. And while they would recognize her bravery and what she was doing in the same breath, they would kind of say, yeah, but so what? Everybody had to go out and find a job. It wasn't that uncommon to not find a job. Lots of people didn't find a job. Like a third of the fucking country was looking for a job. 30 million people. So why can we see what she is doing is admirable? We also can see it and say, so what? These issues of class that you're going to see happen here, they're all important. Remember, this is a film about the war with no war in it. And I'll give you a little hint of the democratization that I'm talking about. Before the war, it was pretty special to be an officer. Most people who became officers were either West Point appointments, which means your family had to know a member of Congress, or your family was rich enough to send you off to an exclusive military academy like the Citadel or VMI or something. The war changed that. You had a hundred men in a company of three platoons. Ideally, you would need three lieutenants, one for each platoon, and you need a captain to oversee them. In some companies, you'd have a staff officer or an intelligence officer, logistics officer, someone like that. So that means you're going to have five officers in a hundred men. There were battalions that had, say, nine companies so that's almost a thousand people and 36 40 officers so you see how rare officers are in the war they ran out of officers fast because the lower officers are in fighting with the enlisted men so the first thing they started doing was taking anyone with a college degree and making them an officer and that wasn't enough so then they started lining the men up and counting them one through ten and the tenth guy whoever he was he'd be thrown into officer candidate school The washout rate was high, so out of 10, maybe you'd get three or four officers through school in addition to the ones that graduated. And this is a huge factor in American society. If you watch the film The Best Years of Our Lives, you'll see the poorest man in a group of friends is the officer, and the richest guy is a buck sergeant. The war did that. It democratized our society. So class meant less because of the Great Depression and because of the Second World War. What was class if you were dead? So thinking you were better than someone else has always been around. But thinking you were not as good as someone else, that was around too. But the war started to change that. And by Mildred Pierce, there's a huge audience out there that does not see hard work as wrong. They see it as commonplace. And that's why they understand Mildred but they hold their nose, and they shake their heads at Bert, but they fucking hate Monty. It's almost like he deserves it. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this scene, so let's take it one at a time. First, we just saw Butterfly McQueen, here she is again, who is a fabulous actress, and that's going to bring up the racism in Mildred Pierce, which we'll have to get to later. And secondly, Crawford's wardrobe in the scenes leading up to this, and they're all by Adrian, and once again, we're going to have to pause for a bit and get on that and come back to it later. And third, we're going to have our second taste of Vita and our first real confrontation between Mildred and Vita. And it's not going to get better from there. So, uh, back to Butterfly McQueen playing Lotta, a maid. And it should say something that Mildred is completely broke, but she can afford to hire a maid to look after her kids while she goes out to get a job. And notice that what she's wearing is Mildred's waitress uniform and Mildred discovers that Vita has been through things and gave of the dress for a specific purpose, to embarrass her mother. So before Vita made her mother feel bad because she didn't like to dress her mother bought her and now she uses a dress her mother wears to make money to shame her for working for a living. That's going to lead us right into the costume design which I mentioned earlier and we'll circle back around on that. But notice Vita has thought this entire uniform thing out. She's figured out not only what it is, but thought about a way out. If you bought it for Lottie, then why shouldn't she be wearing it? You're not wearing it, but she knows better. She wants to make her mother feel guilt for working her ass off. She's fine if her mother sluts her way around the house. That's a perfectly acceptable way to earn money, but not work. No, that's distinctly middle class. And when Vita mentions that her mother doesn't talk about where her people came from, what people? What's Mildred's maiden name? Does anybody know? What kind of name is Vita? Is Vita insinuating that her mother's family were all poor? And that's a strange accusation on the heels of the Great Depression. And she specifically says her father left her mother because of where she was from. Well, wouldn't he know she was poor? could it be that Mildred was something else? Could it be that Vita is accusing her mother of being Jewish? Wouldn't that be distinctly middle class? And to get out of the sticky situation with Vita, Mildred says she was only working at a restaurant to get to know how the system worked because she was planning on buying a restaurant to run and that's the theory she came up with so really we can credit Vita with shaming her mother into getting an into the restaurant business and becoming a success. Yay! Just think about that. It's a little sick, but nevertheless, it seems to be true. So, Mildred stakes everything into this property with Wally, and they're going to go see the owner, and you'll see the start of the first love triangle. Now, let's take a look at costume design for a minute. And while Joan is here, you'll see how broad her shoulders are and I really want to bring attention to her outfits which are amazing she's wearing a rather simple outfit here recall the dress that she wore in the kitchen and the waiting dress she wears and these are rather simple dresses and this is on purpose Curtiz actually sent the costume designer to Sears to get the most normal dresses available he wanted her to look normal as simple as possible and this would contrast greatly with the glamorous lifestyle she dresses for later Other than the opening scene, this scene starts a series of more and more... Oh, complicated is the wrong word, I guess. I would say more and more extravagant dresses on Joan Crawford. Now, you're going to see a series of shots that just might bore the living hell out of you. And I'm going to identify them in time. Check out the ink wells on Wally's desk there and a typewriter, my lord. Okay, silhouette, hourglass, that's our first sign that Wally's might be giving up on Mildred. We have a shot of the car coming to the house and then you're gonna see Wally help Mildred out of the car and up to the house and then in the next shot you're gonna see them enter the house to meet Monty. Are you bored yet? Crossfade into an interior hallway and Monty in the next shot is gonna come out of a study when he's notified by a servant. Are you asleep? I mention all of this because it's rather extraneous, I'm not sure why Hollywood felt compelled to put all of these shots together when they could have just cut straight to a meeting with Monty and Wally and Mildred. These are establishing shots, of course, which are needed, everyone needs them, but they don't need to be this complex or long in duration, but nevertheless they are common in this era. The key motivator here was to show you that this is the house from the opening of the movie. You don't really need to get away from scenes from this era until the, the 1970s when New Hollywood comes into town and they, they start being master editors. A lot of Rock and movies in the 50s, you know, he, they just show him walking around, just walking around through houses and across streets and shit. And I, I honestly think it's because they wanted the ladies to see him on screen for as much as possible. Now, in the background here, above Wally's shoulder, you'll see a reflection of water cast across the fireplace, and it's very prevalent because you're, you're meant to recognize it. It's up on the left now. And this is the same set from the beginning of the movie when Monty gets shot. So you're meant to recognize Monty and meant to recognize this place as the scene of the crime. Now, going back to establishing shots, the one that led up to the house, which is really the only one in the film all the others are quick cuts to introduce the cast so I think Curtis did that to build momentum to reveal Monty the only problem with that is you still have no idea who you're about to meet so it doesn't build any intense feeling before Monty's reveal so take a look at the girl with the dragon tattoo the Swedish version and watch how they reveal Numi Rapace as Lisbeth Slander then watch the American version that David Fincher directed with Rooney Mara now, Rapace is cut to, and she's just standing there in the middle of this room, and you're supposed to be shocked by her appearance, and I get it. I am, even though I read the, the book first. That's fine. But Fincher has this whole sequence of long-establishing shots to, to get there, to reveal Salander, so that when you see Mara for the first time, there's a lot of anticipation of the reveal of the character. And that's what I think Curtiz was going for there, but I don't think that he quite turned it off. Now, Take a moment here to appreciate Joan Crawford's smile, which is past now, but not here, but the shot before. Obviously, that's back projection, but it does look like the Pacific Coast Highway. And this is where Wally tells Mildred that she's going to have to get a divorce, and to her credit, she doesn't agree to it right away, but in the very next scene when she makes up her mind is when Burt slams her over Vita and says Vita will always kick her around. She immediately gets hostile and says, hey, no ifs, ands, or buts, she wants to divorce. So until then, she was soft on the idea, really. But the minute Vita comes up, well, then it's all out war. It gets pretty nasty, really quick, when they start throwing lovers into the fight. And this is the only time when we see that Bert is more than likely really sleeping with Mrs. Beterhoffer because he doesn't deny it. It's a very subtle hint here that Kay is sick. That's going to play in big later. Little does Mildred know that in three days her daughter is going to be dead. There is also another subtle hint that Vita is of dating age when she starts talking about boys. So, although we know there's a love triangle going on, we're confused about who's in the triangle. When it opens, we see Monty and then Mildred basically confesses to his murder and this is a story named Mildred Pierce so the temptation is to believe that Monty and Mildred are in this love triangle And then things start to get weird as the story goes on first you think the third person in the triangle is Bert but Mildred kicks his ass out so when he pops up in a couple of more times he's basically persona non grata then there's Wally constantly trying to get into Mildred's pants which we see in the opening and then in her house but now it just looks like Wally's given up in the car ride from Monty's house so That's a bit strange, but throw money Wally's way and he'll forget about pussy easy. Now let's get back into the clothing design and notice Mildred's simple dress here, a print. And there's a reason for that. Like I was saying before, Crawford was known, like I said before, for for being this extravagant dresser in in her films for MGM. And this is actually one of the reasons why Michael Curtiz didn't want Crawford because she was already known as what is known as a clothes horse in the industry at MGM. It will come as no surprise that Hollywood had its own fashion designers and one of the most successful fashion designers ever in Hollywood was a guy named Adrian Adolph Greenberg who spent his entire career at MGM and who worked on a massive 250 films. Greenberg was so popular that his clothing label just read Gowns by Adrian. There were actresses who wanted to work at MGM simply because Adrian was there. And yes, he was just known as Adrian like Cher or Beyoncé. Adrian had an impressive resume. I'm talking Marie Antoinette, The Wizard of fucking Oz, The Philadelphia Story, Pride and Prejudice. Hitchcock's rope. You could go on and on and on and on, but one thing Adrian did was he put Crawford in these shoulder pads and she was super known for them. So, Jerry Wald at Warner Brothers, he's his big producer, says, MGM let Crawford go and I want to hire her here at Warner Brothers and I want to use her Mildred Pierce and Michael Curtis just flips out. He says, nope, I don't want her or her fucking shoulder pads in so many words. She was known as this clothes horse, which is, again, what they called women they put in films just to show off costumes. And specifically, she was Adrian's clothes horse. And she had become such a staple at MGM that they just called it the Joan Crawford formula. And Curtiz just wasn't having it. Back to the beach house. It's a beautiful dress. I don't care if it's simple. So this dress is from Sears, and any woman in 1945 could have dressed like Joan Crawford, which they should have publicized at the time. Sears would have absolutely paid a shitload of money for that kind of exposure, but I'm sure that Crawford would have hated it. This is Zachary Scott, another Texan from Austin. He was born the same year as my grandfather, 1914, and he died in 1965. He did a lot of TV and a lot of Westerns. Notice... He's wearing a bow tie here. And do do you remember what he was wearing when he first met Mildred and Wally? An ascot. And let me tell you, dear listeners, an ascot means the same thing as it does today. It means you're most likely to be effeminate. Bow ties are the next step down. Tucker Carlson, for instance, wears a bow tie because he's a pussy. You'll see an increasing dress on Monty that really starts to question his gender. He looks really soft. Watch him walk out behind this bar and turn around. And when I first saw this, I swear I thought he was cross dressing. Doesn't that look slightly effeminate to you? Or does it look rather full blown gay? Even the way that he runs there. The sweater and the scotch don't really help. The v neck is just the next step after the bow tie. So, Monty is where things go kind of sideways on us in Mildred Pierce as far as film genres go. It's been a very light gothic film in addition to being this melodrama bookended by film noir. Gothics are typified by uh, Hitchcock's Rebecca 1940 uh, Suspicion, 1941 and they follow a standard plot line. A young woman meets and marries a mysterious man and returns home to undergo weird incidents that point to fears the man may or may not be a murderer. And normally it turns out the woman is just crazy and the man is perfectly well-adjusted human being. It's always the woman who's fucked in the head, right? Always. And some say this all has to do with the woman's confinement in the home and they go stir crazy like some syndrome is going on. It could be. Later on in films like Gaslight, 1944, Sleep My Love in 1948, it turns out the woman is fine. It's the man who is the killer. So here, Monty is not the innocent, nor is he the killer. Instead, he's the victim, and we know this from the get-go. And like almost everything in Mildred Pierce, it has to do with the war. Why are women confined? Well, they are in their home, and that's why they're feeling confined. And what happens when they come out? They become killers. And the men are usually the wrong men. The only thing wrong with Mildred is she fell in love with the wrong man. That man being Monty. If she fell in love with the right man, meaning deadbeat Bert... Everything would be fine. Monty is the wrong man because he is a playboy and an aristocrat and someone who does not like to work. I would say distinctly upper class. Even in this scene, he looks passive, he looks inactive, looks like a slacker. And why is he even interested in Mildred? Because he's going to start her own business and that's that's why. I forgot to bring it up, but Monty actually said in the previous scene that stockings were out for the duration. The duration of what? For the duration of the war. And we're going to dive deep into the war and its meaning soon. Now, this is where the story takes a very dark tone for the first time in the flashback. Look how this is lit here. And we know it's night, but. Jesus, aren't there lights anywhere? And they're going to go inside, and it's like it's going to get worse. And it doesn't look like there's anything other than a couple of lamps and a fireplace. So the tone immediately shifts. The minute she made that kiss previously, right, it all goes downhill, and we wonder why. Well, there's several reasons other than, well, it's in the book. First, Mildred has to be punished for cheating on her husband with another man, and that's how it happens. Remember, she's not divorced from Bert yet. So only does that when Bert mentions Vita and she wants complete controlly. Secondly, if K were to stay, it would dilute the story or the bond between Mildred and Vita. And we have to focus on that if we're going to solve this murder. The third reason that we're going to get rough here. Okay. It's to inject the first line of sympathy into Mildred's character. Everything about Mildred was designed. And I mean down to the clothes she wore and the lines she spoke. It was all designed to appeal to Crawford's working class female fans. Warner Brothers knew exactly what they were doing. They wanted those fans. There's nothing equivalent today except maybe the X-Files movie when they knew that 20 million people were going to go see an X-Files film because the TV show had such a huge following. Too bad it wasn't any good. But Crawford's devotion to her fan base was legendary. And her tale, this... Horatio Alger rags to riches story. Everyone knew that even if they didn't know the details and and so the struggle was to show that how this great movie star in this role she's just like you. She dresses like you at Sears and she's divorced like many of you are and want to be and she's a lost child just like you which happened way more often than people realize and still happens now and people just don't talk about it, right? But she's just like you. So this is meant to invoke sympathy, but not just for the sake of sympathy, but for the story. It's it's really taking advantage of this connection that Crawford has with her fan base. And I'm not sure how that would replicate today. And here we find that Mrs. Beterhofer isn't really the complete bitch that we thought she was, but actually a very compassionate person. So perhaps we're too quick to draw conclusions, or at least Mildred was too quick to condemn a woman who has been so accommodating with her dying child. Horrifying to lose a child most times I see this in movies it's it's just a shameless exploitation of feelings this is handled pretty well a short tribute now to Joanne Marlowe who played Kay in Mildred Pierce she did a fantastic job she is most known for this short role she was born in 1936 and was discovered on a family vacation to Hollywood at the age of four she acted in Hollywood for 10 years and was in 29 movies, including Yankee Doodle Dandy with James Cagney. She left acting and went to Loyola, where she became a lawyer and worked in the chief trial lawyer's office for the U.S. Attorney in Los Angeles. She was in a car accident in the late 1960s and unfortunately slipped into a coma where she stayed until her death in 1991. Joanne Marlowe, ladies and gentlemen. K. Pierce. mothers are responsible for their children not fathers so if a mother neglects her children then her children die and the mothers are responsible for their deaths now Kay the film starts to shift a little bit since she's gone and it concentrates really hard on Mildred and her weird reliance on Vita this is the the height of the melodrama it was pretty light until now and you can say Benign before the war, but after the war it gets way darker. You would have career woman films that were fairly common in the 30s and 40s that would take on these types of topics. Rosalind Russell acted in 23 films and she had 23 different careers. Katharine Hepburn built a career out of playing career woman. So the idea that a woman was working was not uncommon, but after the war it was seen as distasteful. It was seen as injurious to a man and his masculinity that a woman take a job. And that's why Bert is so ineffectual when he's unemployed and lets Mildred push him out. And it's why Monty looks so effeminate. He doesn't work. Of course he looks like a dame. But Mildred works. And she dresses like it. She looks like she has more balls than all the men in this movie put together, including Wally. Just check out the shoulder pads right here, straight across. Something in the same vein that you should probably watch is Woman of the Year from 1942 starring Katherine Hepburn, who started as a great journalist, who was a failure in the kitchen, and that, as it happens, is where it counted the most. And the end of the film left you dangling, wondering whether she has solved the problem of whether or not to stop being the great journalist everyone wanted her to be. And... They were annoyed by this great journalist in order so that a a housewife in every home, you know, they would want to be that great journalist. They wanted to be that great woman. That's the fantasy. Some call this ending a classic relinquishment of responsibility. Now think about that. It's your job as a woman to give up being professional because in the end, nature wants you barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. And here she is in the kitchen. And so was Wally with an apron on. So he's effeminate too. So in spite of this image that that is preferable to men to keep women in their place, to keep them in the kitchen, melodramas are popular. Women like them. And women like these independent women pictures, which are kind of a strain in the melodrama genre. Kinda of like a subgenre. These these films stated that women could be strong and courageous, which if you think about it, it's obvious. Women had to be strong. They had to be courageous if they wanted to survive in a man's world. And why did women like to watch independent women at the cinema? Well, remember, this is Hollywood. This is fantasy. And being an independent woman was as unattainable an adventure, just like any other Hollywood fantasy. It's just like uh, Gunga Din or Lost Horizon. It's something that doesn't exist. Most of the independent women films are light melodramas or comedies, not film noirs like Mildred Pierce. And this movie ended with that whole subgenre. and destroyed it. And it really tried to do something that couldn't be done. Not permanently. It tried to create a career wife and mother. This would be impossible in 1945. The world has just survived this utterly amazing, catastrophic event. And the thing America wanted the most was to go back to normal. And that's what they tried to do, is to forget everything that was ever bad and just go back to the way things were before the war, minus the Depression stuff. And Mildred here had to be destroyed to show mothers that they had no way forward. Mildred Pierce and Rosie the Riveter, for that matter, they they had to be sacrificed on the altar of normalcy. Where was her place? In the home. Only whores worked out of the house. And going back to Hepburn, if I may, she played a lawyer, a reporter, an athlete, a pilot, God knows what else. She depicted unusual women, and that's why she was cast for those roles, and that's why women flocked to see her in those roles. She was unusual because she was a career woman. I took a tour at Paramount Studios last year with a friend of mine in California, and on the tour, they showed us this little park in the center of the Paramount office buildings. And in this park, just across from where Alfred Hitchcock worked, was Desilu Pictures' home home of Star Trek, and the woman who produced that series, who called the shots, it wasn't Gene Roddenberry, it was Lucy Arnaz. And Paramount was so worried about bad publicity because she was a working mother, and oh my God, what about those kids? How dare she use a nanny or a daycare like millions of us use today? They actually staged a photo shoot there in that park as if that park were her front yard, and the offices you saw in the background, that stood in for her house. And all of this was to calm a public in the 50s and 60s that might condemn her for being more than she wanted to be or, or rather she was being more than most of them wanted her to be right she was bringing in the bacon way more bacon than her husband was so Mildred is dressed in black to mourn Kay even though the restaurant is a success that's Eve Arden as Ida amazing she was born in 1908 Zigfield Follies girl came to Hollywood hit it big had her own TV show in the 50s called The Eve Arden Show. And you might remember her as the principal in Greece. Unfortunately, she passed away in 1990. You're going to see the triangle come up again. And it's going to further confuse things. Because there's going to be four of them in one shot. So one doesn't belong. What's Wally doing here if he's been given the boot? What's Vita doing here at all? Why is Mildred smiling? And why is Monty frowning? the independent woman. So you had that awkward handshake there. And as it goes on and on and on, what did you notice? That's all one shot folks. Camera pan, right. Then left. It's going back to right again, pretty long shot for a melodrama. And then you listen to Wally talk to Ida about where to, where Ida shows her leg and he's still a pig, but he's an uninterested pig. And why? Because of that subtlety that I was talking about before. Ida is more like a man than she is a woman. So she reflects the problem with Monty which is, he is more like a woman than he is a man. So notice Mildred opens her ledger. It's because she's all business. It seemed like the independent woman film really pegged in here, right? It looks like it. In that genre, that disappeared for a few decades, but it seems to come back only recently. Working Girl, right? I'd say the 90s saw films like that. Aaron Brockovich. You saw a lot of films around Though it's, it's tough being a single mom. That, that type of film. And the different types of roles that you used to have, the the ones like Barbara Stanwyck and Claire Trevor did and Ida Lupino, they the ones that she used to portray. And I think all those disappeared. And now you have an attempt to get those back for sure. But there's an attempt to create more roles for women, meaningful roles like Lady Bird last year, for example. And we all hope that they, they have a future. Roles like Ellen Page had in Juno, which was fantastic. I think we'll see more of those in the future. I hope so. I hope Captain Marvel isn't the end for the Marvel Universe to cash in on female superheroes. Now, ultimately, the reason these roles, these good roles, disappeared is because women have basically consented. They still go to films, and they watch films. And many of them are very passive, and it's not a huge issue for them. They'll watch 11 guys pull a heist because it's entertaining. It's unrealistic, but it's entertaining. And when you're a woman, and your life is a struggle... And for some women, your life is Ms. 45, if you've seen that amazing film. Sometimes your life is more than a struggle. Sometimes it's a constant hassle of dickheads bothering you. Women knew that melodramas were extreme and unlikely, but they also knew that the suffering that happened in a melodrama was universal female experience. So they either wanted you to see it, to sympathize with it, or they wanted to see something fantastic. You went to see Sandra Bullock get away with a crime because you'd like to have a few million too. Okay, so now we're back in the present and Mildred's in the police station and the tone is way, way dark again but we're prepped for that in the restaurant scene for just a little bit. It lightened up. The noir element here is meant to get us back on track to control the narrative, so to speak. So you can see how there are really two films here. A very split structure between this very masculine film noir that's going on and the lighter melodrama that's going to get darker in tone as we progress, I've already said that. The narrative tone as well as lighting tone as the film goes on and here's where Mildred confesses she says okay I did it I killed Monty and the cop does not believe her for a minute and we have to ask ourselves why does the cop not believe her well obviously he knows something that she doesn't and we should be used to this split structure for for now Hollywood likes to split things their whole existence is split even though It's a fantasy machine, the fantasy apparatus I like to call it because I read that somewhere about Vietnam cinema. It likes to categorize everything that it sells. It likes to label everything because it's easier to sell something that you can easily categorize. If you can pigeonhole it, it, then the message becomes clearer for sure. And Hollywood ultimately separates what they sell between two types, fantasy movies and realistic movies. And Fantasy movies are science fiction, horror, westerns, crime dramas, catastrophes, spectaculars. Even even historical dramas are ultimately fantasies. And realist movies are melodramas and documentaries and a lot of those. So guess which one Hollywood prefers to make. A lot has been written about this shift that Crawford made from MGM to Warner Brothers, which it was a brilliant move on her part. She needed Mildred Pierce just as much as the film needed her, but there was a problem. The director, Michael Curtiz, he didn't want Joan Crawford. Curtiz was a world-famous director at this point. This was the guy who directed Casablanca, mind you. He was it, as far as Hollywood was concerned. He was absolutely hysterical about it, and word on the street is Curtiz demanded that Crawford do a screen test for this role, which was an insult. An absolute insult. Everyone in town knew that Joan Crawford could act. And who knew what the last film she had done a screen test for? It had probably been 10 years since her last screen test, for for all we know. But he demanded the screen test because he thought she was such a diva that she would say no. She'd say, forget it. And then Curtis could get whoever he wanted for the role. Ingrid Bergman or someone like that, probably. But Crawford did do the screen test. And she blew everyone away including Michael Curtiz, who then very begrudgingly decided that she was right for the part. Crawford saw her future all over this film. She knew what it was, and she knew what it could do for her, and she needed it badly. She was in free fall, and Mildred Pierce saved her career. And from now to the end of time, when you see anything about Joan Crawford anywhere in print, the film that everyone points to as the Joan Crawford film, to cite is this film, Mildred Pierce. She's that good. If you look close to some of these bills that she's signing off here, the, well, you should be at 110. It happened about 109. There's one for the Esquire haberdashery, and you'll notice three things. First, a dozen monogram shirts in 1944 cost 215 bucks, which is quite a deal now. Second, the date is listed as 1944, and Monty's address in Pasadena is on Normandy Road. Now, this is a real road. I looked it up, but the address does not exist. But this is, to this day, a very nice neighborhood, and you have to ask. 1944, Normandy? Is this a D-Day reference? It seems too easy to pass up. And the third thing is the motto of the business actually says, again, Esquire Haberdashery, the motto is Outfitters for the Sterner Sex. And the idea that Monty is the Sterner Sex is a fucking joke. It's a joke now, and it would have been a joke then. Now, this outfit is the Quiz Essential 40s Crawford shoulder pad outfit, and she looks like a million bucks, and she looks like a man. And this is the look that first Curtiz did not want her to take. And all I can say is it looks like he very succinctly figured out what her revolution during the film would be. Look at it. She looks like a businesswoman. And there were no businesswomen back then. Curtiz was probably one of the most successful directors in Hollywood history. And he knew what he was doing when he put her in his outfit. He, incidentally, he was a native of Hungary, but he worked in Germany and Austria until he came to Hollywood in 1925 in this wave of... German emigres that included Fritz Lang and you know dozens of others. As a director, he pumped out sometimes seven movies a year, and by 1940, he hit gold numerous times with Captain Blood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Yankee Doodle Dandy, the ground shattering Casablanca, the film that more people saw in the 1940s than any other movie. This is the Army, starring Ronald Reagan. After Mildred Pierce, his filmography just gets as absurd, right? Flamingo Road. White Christmas, We're No Angels, The Comancheros, among others. He was an actor, a writer, a producer, and he worked as a costume designer and a second unit director and an AD. But Curtis was basically a director. He was known as a director, and he more than knew his way around a studio. He could work in a studio with his eyes closed. Now, do you guys remember the Bechtel test? Since we have Mildred and Vita in one scene here from the last podcast, the Bechtel test? Let's try it here. It's something we should do from every movie here on out, okay? Uh, Is there more than one woman in this movie? Check. Do they talk to each other? Check. Do they talk to each other about anything other than a man? Well, technically, yes. They talk about business. They talk about illness. They talk a lot about money. So it looks like it passes. Now, look how Vita looks more like a woman than ever before, even more than her mother. And Monty is still in his fucking bow tie. And see at the beginning of the shot, Ida and Mildred are on the same side of the frame and the lamp was dividing the room. And it's like the the workers are separate from the loafers. And when I say that Mildred looks like a man, I'm not trying to be an ass. I'm trying to outline the reverse directions that she and Monty are going in. She looks strange for a mother of two in 1945. It really stands out. She doesn't look normal. At the time, She would have looked really out of place. Even then, some would use the word queer and that leads to a subtext that's going to come up really soon. Like now. This is 1945, folks, and I hate to keep bringing that up, but it's a fact that you can't get away from. This film holds a fear, a deep fear about the post-war world. To pin it down is hard, but it's a lot of sexual economics. Women who choose careers over motherhood absolutely risk being called a lesbian. And why is this? Women in 1945 who worked, took a job from a man, a woman who was not at home, was not there for her kids, or didn't have kids at all, and this was downright subversive at a very, very crucial time in our nation's history. Women who chose to do this threatened our nation's security by making it vulnerable to communist subversion, and this had all kinds of consequences because the war was so traumatic. The nation craved normality in the post-war era like nothing else. They wanted to go back to the way everything was before the war, and that really crushed a lot of alternative lifestyles that before the war were taboo, but generally didn't matter. So gays were really put into the closet after the war, locked in there. And if you were gay, you were a target for blackmail. So that meant no one wanted gays serving in government. No one wanted them to have any government clearances because they could be blackmailed. So this meant no gays were allowed in government service. No gays were allowed to work for government contractors. And obviously no gays were allowed in the military. And that spread across all of society. Nobody wanted a gay working for their business. And if you weren't making new families and buying shit, then you were subversive. And everyone labeled a homosexual, whether they were or not, they were labeled as subversive. And this goes into the fear, the outright fear among heterosexuals that homosexuals were passing for straight that they were indistinguishable invisible like Monty like Mildred you couldn't tell them apart and rather than come to the obvious conclusion which is well if you can't tell people apart then they must be the same they came to the strange jump in reasoning which is they're just like communists because we can't tell them apart either so in this way, Mildred is being very subversive by the way she dresses. She's dressing like a man. She's working like a man. And if it looks like a duck and it talks like a duck, and then what is it? That's what the undertone here is with the shoulder pads. Now, Veda just got a car, and that's a huge issue in the novel. Like I said before, Mildred had to basically steal Bert's car in order to search for a job. And this is L.A., not New York after all. and This was a huge subplot. And after a few chapters later, when Mildred has hit it big, she buys Vito a car, and it's this big, huge deal, and Mildred had to steal her husband's car to find a job, like I said before, and she works so hard, that in a few short years, she's not only able to buy her own car, but she's able to buy Vita a car, and huge, folks. This goes into the politics of the automobile. What is the car in American life and all of that, and there's a huge boom with the Model T, but the real age of the automobile, 1950s, right? Which is almost here. not here in the present day, but during Mildred Pierce, but the war was the turning point. No cars were made in Detroit or anywhere else for that matter, between 1941 and 1945. All the plants had been converted to make war materials, tanks, airplanes. They didn't even make tractors. They just made tanks. So to get a new car, man, in 1945, you're talking insanity. My grandfather told me about the time he worked in Galveston on the docks, and this would have been the winter of 1945. And he just got back from Europe, just not even a month earlier. And he said this guy drove onto the dock in a new Hudson or a Studebaker. I forget what it was. And the longshoremen there were just aghast. And one of them said, I remember my grandfather said this. One of the longshoremen said if he had a car like that, he thought he was dead and gone to heaven. That's outrageous. That's how outrageous it was to have a new car in 1945. And Vita can barely drive one. And she has one. She's 16. She has a car. This is crazy talk in 1945. In the previous scene, Ida had the shoulder pads on there too, but never Vita. No shoulder pads for her. Too feminine. That old accountant dude, look at his shoulders round, but a bow tie, so he's submissive too. And why is that? Because he works for a woman, and that's why. And see how he's afraid of Ida, and check out this, the lady as she approaches the camera, the shoulder pads. Why? Is this the style? No, it's because in this scene, she's all business. And there's a few shots of Crawford's hair from behind, and I have to say that it's it very impressive, what the hairstylist did for her. She looks like a million bucks in every scene, largely because of her hair. And notice that she has this rudimentary tie on. And and if you see the tone of this shot, where it was light outside, now it's getting darker. And while we're waiting for Vita to extort money out of this poor woman, let's look at some contemporary reviews. And if you read those, the ones in 1945, you'll see two trends emerge. The first is that Mildred is responsible for her daughter's actions. Now, I I find this very interesting because when I saw this film for the first time, which I guess was around 2005 or 2004, I did not think that. I saw Vita as a 17 or 18-year-old completely responsible for her own actions. I never thought for a moment that Mildred was conditioning her child as a murderer because she was so sweet on her, and I definitely didn't see this incest angle. And that was a twist to read about. Secondly... There is this very surprising empathy for Mildred despite seeing her as this horrible mother. So it's this contradictory behavior among mostly male reviewers, mind you, that it's Mildred's fault that Vita is such a bitch, but at the same time, you feel sorry for Mildred. Very weird. And there is this idea that Vita is a mirror that she reflects her mother. You can list the reviews, the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Commonweal, Variety, the LA Times, and they all say similar things about... Mildred and Vita. She spoiled rotten. It's her mother's fault. And the reviews also have this strange current, this undercurrent that she can't see before, right? The, the re- reviews are very positive about Crawford's performance. And some even say how she, she saved the film from being something campy or worse. And many bring up the fact that she didn't work for two years previous to this and how she fought for such a strong role and it paid off. And there are articles like in Newsweek, for example, that spend more time on Crawford than they do on the film itself. And you can really tell just how big of a star she was. Newsweek even mentions her husband or two adopted children or 27 room house and 16 fur coats. And the longer you read that review, the more you think that they're not talking about Crawford, they're talking about Mildred. They do blur the line a bit, but then they leave out some really horrible details of Crawford's life. They, they mention how her formal education was really lacking and how she was treated horribly in the early days of Hollywood, but they don't say anything about the fact that Crawford and her mother were absolutely homeless together for a very long time. Maybe maybe they didn't know. And then you move forward in time and look at the reviews for the book release of Mommy Dearest. Elliot Serkin in film comment draws a straight parallel from Christina Crawford to Vita Pierce. Now, now that, folks, that's fucking disgusting. It, well Vita is a murderer and Christina Crawford is a survivor of child abuse and how any man in his right mind draws a comparison is beyond most people's reasoning skills. There are other reviewers at the time who bring up this idea of, Hey, you know, if Crawford didn't have to bring home the bacon, then maybe she'd be a better mother. And it's just a repeat of the film reviews of Mildred Pierce in 1945. Only it's, it's, it's 1980. And it's like nothing has progressed. Now, back to the fashion here, since they're mirroring each other, and you see in this shot, you know, I mean, Mildred was wearing a top hat before, and you've got to be kidding me. Her her dress kind of looks like a tuxedo, and it it reminds me of watching Marlena Dietrich dress as a man and kiss a girl on the lips, and everyone said, well, that's erotic, but it doesn't mean she's a lesbian. To which I say, you are now engaged in a willing suspension of disbelief. Yes. Sometimes a cigar is a cigar, and other times the cigar is meant to look like a big, giant, throbbing cock. Vida kissing the check as if it's the greatest thing she's ever done. That's disturbing. This is going to lead straight to the second biggest confrontation in the film. The amazing thing about this is how Vida just hates her mother for working. She hates it, and she sees her mother as this blue-collar, lower-class slave, and she takes the money. She has no problem doing that but she just won't recognize all the hard work her mother does for her, right? Strength is an uncommonly woman trait at this time, and it has to be punished. The only strength a woman was to have was to have the strength to stay at home for her husband while he was off working or off to war, right? And in this contradiction, this hate for woman, the one who works, even though that she couldn't do anything without a working woman, you couldn't eat or go to a war, this amazing hypocrisy is why American women loved Joan Crawford. The thinking among the women in the audience was that she was exposing that hypocrisy. It really earned her a lot of fans. It, it really did. Now, there's going to be first of several profile shots of Mildred and Vita coming up. He just had one, and you'll see a, a close-up in about a minute that's going to look very dramatic. And throughout the movie, you have this recurring profile shots for the two of them. It'll happen again and again, and when they're in, together in bed, wink, wink. And when you see them the, together, the differences between them suddenly go away. They're seen very similarly. They act very similarly. Here, they're dressed very similarly. You could say that they switch at that moment or two become one. The shading is exactly, exactly similar on their faces. Big slap, big dramatic moment. Lots of people in the audience going, <gasps> right? It could be that this closeness between them... It, It's what crushes her relationship with Vita. She just can't take her mother being around being so close all the time. And as the film goes on, you'll see the way that Vita dresses is more like her mother and you'll see her start to wear shoulder pads and furs and walk like Joan Crawford. It's like she's imitating her mother, this person that she hates so much. So that's a paradox. It's confusing, but there's no doubt that Vita is imitating her mother and they, they come closer in appearances. If you see their hair and their costumes start to meld, it's very interesting, but Then at the end, you'll see Vita is deliberately looking different. She's smaller, more petite, and her clothes are a bit different. And that's when she blames Mildred for being a bad mother. And that's why she slaps her. She blames her mother for being the way she is, the way she was raised. And she's going to tell her mother, by the time this movie is over, it, it may not appear to everyone the same way, but how it appears to a lot of people is that Vita does not respect her mother's strength. She actually has a higher opinion of her father, who she... Never sees than her mother who puts food on the table. Now, her father, Bert, seems to be intimidated by his wife, which is strange. Marriages don't have to be perfect, but they do have to be a partnership. So, what do we see there? It seems like strong women threaten the development of men. Butterfly McQueen, in that previous shot, she openly complained about her roles in Hollywood. She said she didn't mind playing maids when she started acting, but as her career went on, that was essentially all she played. It's a damn shame because she was very talented. She got the nickname Butterfly because of the way her arms flailed around her when she acted. She legally changed her name from Thelma, but people still called her that for the rest of her life. People uh, most remember her from Gone with the Wind when she utters that famous line, "But Miss Scarlett, I don't know nothing about birth and babies." She continued acting, but she did get a degree in political science in 1975, but in, in 1980 a guard on the Greyhound bus thought she was a pickpocket. Racial profiling, I'm sure. And through her Against a bench so hard she cracked a few ribs. She lived very frugally off the settlement for the rest of her life in Augusta, Georgia, and in 1995 she tried to light a kerosene lamp in her house and caught fire. She was found on the sidewalk and died in hospital from burns. So it's not a stretch to say that the attitudes of Mildred Pierce are a reflection of America's society and attitudes in 1945. Timing is everything in film. Films are relevant or not relevant based on the time they're released. Sometimes they're not relevant at all when they're released, but become relevant much later, like Siege was before and and after 9-11, for example. Mildred Pierce is timely because it's displaying a mindset and a cultural standard that were in vogue specifically around October 1945. It's amazing that a film with so much stuff and it was cleared through the production board, but Mildred Pierce came together pretty fast. First, John M. Cain had been working as a screenwriter in Hollywood for well over 10 years. He worked as a novelist since 1932. Mildred Pierce was published in 1939. And in 1945, Raymond Chandler's script for his novel Double Indemnity was approved by the production board. And that film was loaded with scandalous stuff. So Jerry Wald, the producer of Mildred Pierce, thought they had a chance to push through Cain's book, even though it had this undercurrent of lesbian incest. To hide this, Wald introduced Monty's murder so it would look like it was a film noir and less like a mother who literally lets her daughter get away with murder because she's in love with her. Kane was so angry at the decision to include a murder that he refused to have anything to do with the production. So there's a lot to go through here with Mildred's relationship with Vita, it's very complicated. And I know we're supposed to look at this film as a vessel that we're only supposed to look at it, what we see on the screen. But the life imitating art angle is just too much. Of course, I'm referring to Christine Crawford's book about her mother, Mommy Dearest. Christine Crawford said she didn't write it because she was cut out of her mother's will. Not that there was much left anyway, but it was what she said in the will, which was for reasons best known to them. That was not just the dagger, which she could have taken from her mother, but the twisting of the dagger insinuating that they were the ones who hurt their mother instead of the other way around Joan Crawford didn't have any natural kids she adopted two daughters which Christine Crawford says was more like a purchase than an adoption and in her book Mommy Dearest did a number of things it absolutely destroyed Joan Crawford's image it showed this unreal duality of her professional actress extremely loyal to her fans in a man's world she earned and took everything that was due to her and how can you not respect that and at the same time, she put her children through a living hell, waking up with her daughter in the middle of the night and having a screaming, shaking shit fit over wire hangers. A serious conniption fit. Making her adopted kids acknowledge every day that they were adopted by her by calling her mommy dearest. It's completely fucked up. The the woman was a nut job. She needed many, many years of therapy and possibly committed the way that she treated her kids. It was beyond shameful. Now compare Crawford as a mother to Mildred Pierce. Who absolutely spoiled her fucking kids rotten horribly so and for what what did Crawford or Pierce get back for treating their kids in the way they did that's a valid question now notice that Mildred just passed a sailor and there's a bunch of sailors in the bar heckling her daughter and again the ever-present war right and what are the sailors known for sexual licentiousness homosexuality you name it and Wally has a bow tie on why didn't he fight in the war something's wrong now When you watch this makeup scene between Mildred and Veda, watch it carefully. It reminds me of a very similar scene in Imitation of Life in 1959, which was a remake of a film with the same name in 1934. And the deal they strike here is, I don't want to come home as long as you're embarrassing me as an unmarried working mom. So in order to get her daughter back, Mildred does what most people think is the unthinkable. She goes back to the man she told to fuck off, Monty. And she says, I'll marry you and be your sugar mommy. And Monty says yes, because he wants the money. And I'm guessing that he'll want something else. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on Mommy Dearest. It's important, but it's not this film. If you want a deep dive into that, you absolutely must listen to Mike White's Projection Booth podcast on Mommy Dearest. You will learn everything that you always wanted to know about Christine Crawford's experience, the actress Zilla that is Faye Dunaway and everything else under the sun the projection booth is by far the greatest film podcast out right now and you should absolutely check it out i'm just going to use what we know about christine crawford to shed a little bit of light over what we know about her mother but speak very generally it it just seems like there's this huge gap between what joan crawford's image is and what her private life was there are are a few things that are undeniable crawford like pierce was a working mother without job security now with the exception of that slap that mildred gives vita there is no child abuse in this film unless you count overindulgence as child abuse the real abuse is that she was not at home which in 1945 is where a mother was supposed to be so everyone watching crawford here even in this scene would be leaving the theater saying to their partner well what did she expect she was never home and a woman's place was the home, so look at Crawford's undeniable skill, her far-reaching talent at acting, and know, know that she has two daughters at home. And I ask you, if Mildred Pierce is guilty of the crime of neglecting her children, how can Joe Crawford not be guilty of the same? And yet, no one seems to bring this point up. And if Mildred is innocent of neglecting her kids, meaning that Vita is responsible for her own behavior, then what does that say about Crawford? The difference being, of course, that Christine Crawford seems not to be anything like Vita. The end result is undeniable though that Monty's murder is linked to Mildred's mother. So what's for sale here? Is it Monty's mansion? As it happens not, Monty is for sale? The 10 years leading up to Mildred Pierce showcased this genre the woman's film, and it was pretty much the curtain call for those films. Those films were rich, and the melodrama made it exciting. Women's films were supposed to be what they were. They were called weepies. You wanted to cry in them. They were written and marketed to women. How did the feds know where which theater John Dillinger was going to when they went out to go shoot him dead? Well, they knew that he wasn't going to be seeing the melodrama, right? They went to the action movie. So this is proto-soap opera stuff with the music to match. Joan Crawford is probably the biggest star of the style, but Betty Davis was very close behind her. And then there was Katharine Hepburn and the other women's films. They all replicate what Mildred is and what she does. Betty Davis died of a brain tumor in Dark Victory, for instance. She made an art out of suffering. In now Voyager, she stays virginal, pining for a man pretty much her whole life. Melodrama, remember, is the exaggeration of dramatic material. It's the loud violins that play when Mildred is standing at the pier thinking of killing herself. The thing about the weepies, though, and about Mildred Pierce is that they admit the despair of women's life. It admits the emptiness they feel and the sadness. And they seem to at least recognize the injustice of the sacrifice out of their lives that they make, that all women make. And you grab a tissue and you wipe the tear, and that's why they call it a weepy. So it's not like people didn't know a woman's life sucked. They knew. They just saw it as the way things were supposed to be. So when you see Mildred, in effect, either selling herself off to her daughter or buying Monty for her daughter as a cash exchange, that's what's going on here. And that makes everybody uncomfortable. Money is changing hands. They actually celebrate with a drink. She actually says, sold. One bargain." And that's how she becomes Mildred Berrigan. Now, the 10 years after Mildred Pierce is pretty damning. Women become very unhappy, and as a result, they become more brutalized. They're unhappy about their domestic situations, and you'll see them act out due to that situation. The movies reflect this. Double Indemnity, 1944. Clash by Night, 1952. Queen Bee, 1955. All About Eve, 1950. Payment on Demand, 1951. The Lady from Shanghai, 1948. These films were where the female role was going. The birth of the femme fatale, right? The the fatal woman. And in the melodrama or the evolution of what was to be the melodrama in the 40s and 50s, you'll see very on-the-nose portrayals. Joan Crawford played a series of women that go mad, but so does Olivia de Havilland or Joan Caulfield or Ingrid Bergman or... Barbara Stanwyck, right? Sunset Boulevard. Either they are passive like Mildred. Some would say too passive. And and I mean as a parent or they are the subtle villain, right? Ava Gardner, Rita Hayworth, Lana Turner, Jane Russell all played singers or actresses or prostitutes. And the out and out sluts like Doris Day, Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor. Love Me or Leave Me, 1955. The Man Who Knew Too Much, 1956. Pillow Talk, 1959. Lover Come Back, 1962. All of them pretty much cave into the ideas that you see in Mildred Pierce. Businesswoman and wed If there ever was a sinister image, this is it. Lottie moves into the mansion because Monty can't afford a maid or a manservant anymore you're instantly hit with grandeur but it's only going to last for about 14 more minutes so let's wrap up mommy dearest there's there's tons of reviews about dunaway's performance faye dunaway who played joan crawford and some of them are good and some of them are bad and i don't care to go through all of them other than to say that she was over the top because she was directed to go over the top and many people talk about megalomania and how crawford had it and dunaway had it and that's about it i think they're missing the point but whatever there's there are some reviewers who said that it was strange that Mommy Dearest didn't have a lot of Crawford's professional life in it because they could imagine if, if you were a working mother who worked for Louis B. Mayer, it would be reasonable to assume that it would have an effect on your personal life. And there's a lot to unpack there. And there's a lot to unpack there. Crawford ran through four husbands. She had a drinking problem. Obviously, there was something going on in her life that she found hard to control. It appears that whatever was imperfect in her life, she took it out on her kids. And I don't think that any of that has to do with her being a working mother. My mother was a single mom, and she didn't beat the shit out of me at 2 o'clock in the morning. Crawford did seem to treat her kids as props on a stage, kind of like the Wests do today. So in some way, things haven't changed. McCall's magazine goes over this. They had an interview with Crawford where she talked about how She left MGM when the industry was changing and there was this paternalistic attitude on the studio and she was getting older and she hated it. But how is that different from anyone else? Well, you're most likely not going to get replaced by Betty Grable or Lana Turner or Judy Garland. But Hollywood is like that. Hollywood moves on. There's a limited performance window, especially for women. It'll be interesting to see if Jennifer Lawrence makes it into her 30s. Crawford even says in the McCall's interview that she wished that she had a real private life. But wasn't that up to her? This is the woman who invited a press corps into her bedroom when she received the Oscar for Mildred Pierce. So things get dark in the last few scenes, and the minute Bert shows up, there's light all over the place. But don't worry, the minute the father figure leaves, the dark comes right back in the shot. What could she be looking at with such glee through that window? I wonder, could it be Vita? And oh look, Vita is dressed just like her mother. So it really doesn't matter who Crawford was or what her upbringing was or what she had to put up with. There's no excuse for the way that she treated her kids. Full stop. Yes, there was sexism. Yes, there were actresses like Frances Farmer who were just treated horribly. And yes, females get a shit sandwich in that industry. And it's not fair to say, well, that's Hollywood and move on. We have to say that Crawford had no right to treat her kids that way. And in the same breath, we should say that Vita was not Mildred's fault. And Crawford was nothing like Mildred. And even though they share some attributes like like work ethic and so forth, it's just too different. And there are clearly sexist reviews at the time. The New Yorker explicitly says that Crawford is not as frantic in appearance as she used to be. Well, what the hell is that supposed to mean? And then you look at reviews now, and it's more aligned. Roger Ebert does not have a review of Mildred Pierce, but he has one of Mommy Dearest, which starts with, why would anyone want to watch this movie? You can fill in the blanks from there. However, Angela Jade Bastian has a very good review of Mildred Pierce and she laments that Crawford today is only remembered for her wire hangers. Her professionalism is completely forgotten. Yet, if you look at Brando's career, that man was a fucking joke the last 20 years of his life and yet people still look back and say, Wow, look at the work he did. And they goo and they gush over him. Why don't we extend Crawford that same adulation? Brando was just as much of a fuck-up in his personal life as Crawford was, so I think Bastion is onto something there. Just a little bit of sexism, to be sure. Now, this scene is a perfect example of what Butterfly McQueen said was the problem in her movies. You know, she was treated like an idiot and so forth. She wasn't an idiot. She was an amazingly beautiful actress who was able to hit notes and do what she was told, and that's called professionalism. So, what sin is Mildred what so what sin is Mildred guilty of so far Well she's energetic entrepreneurial she has hard work self-reliance perseverance she's a regular Horatio Alger Unfortunately she's a woman in 1945 and we just can't have those things Now the minute she marries Monty she gets Vita back and everything business-wise goes downhill fast which is why she's here in this room Now you start to see the cinematic decline in everything that Mildred does, and it's kind of disturbing. Before she started working like the devil and she was poor, but her children or the need to give her children everything drove her to this commercial success. But now that Mildred has everything that she's ever worked for, where are all those fine things? Well, they're all going to Vita. The film is not clear as the novel when it comes to this, but in the book it goes on and on about it's not just the car and the house and the ever-increasing allowance, but it just seems like a water tap that can never be shut off. If Mildred had just done what women were supposed to do, what would have happened? Let's just say that she took Bert's advice and just stayed at home. She would have been content with what her financial status was, and her full-time love would have been plenty for the kids. Even Vita. Okay, you can stop laughing. But it's too late for that now. The effect of all this downward spiral is to restore Bert, or all men rather, to the area of production. Of being productive, and to marry, if I can use that term, marry the woman's failure in production with her failure in reproduction. Right. Mildred is a failure in business because she is a failure at being a parent. The only success she can have is to be a parent, and she doesn't even want that. If she wanted it, she would have stayed home. There's this very little watched film with Gillian Anderson and Eric Stoltz called The House of Mirth. It's a little weird. Dan Aykroyd is in it, for instance. It takes place around 1900, and Anderson plays this woman who has a very uncomfortable life, but she chooses love over arrangement when it comes to marriage, and the result is that she completely screws up her life. Slowly, over the course of the movie, she increasingly makes bad decisions and drops from this very privileged station in her life to basically being a seamstress. The lowest of the low for one, basically one step above a prostitute, and it's because she won't let someone choose her husband. You won't watch it more than once, but you should give it the once over, I'm sure. There's the gun. And here we are at the finale, and here's what we debate about the twisted slogan for the movie. It's not Mildred Pierce, right? Don't tell what she did, and if you think about it, it's kind of sick. It's not being coy. It's not saying, well, she's involved in a murder and goes through the film because it's a scandalous that she killed her husband over jealousy with her daughter. No, it's worse than that. Don't tell anyone that she is a dissatisfied housewife who earned her way in the world by herself. Don't tell anyone that she left her deadbeat husband and provided for her children herself and that subsequently she killed one kid and doomed the other to a lifetime of jail because she focused more on her business than on raising her kids. That's Mildred's true crime. She was blamed for her children's behavior. She was blamed for abdicating, if we can use that word, her maternal responsibility. She absolutely refuses to discipline Vita in every way. And Vita actually says to Mildred here, It's your fault that I am the way I am. So, why exactly is this film so memorable? Important. Yes, it's important. M.A.S.H. is important, but to me, it's not very memorable. There were tons of film noirs before and after Mildred Pierce. Certainly there were better ones, but how many have this shot? You've seen this dress before, haven't you? Now watch Mildred's reaction. It might confuse you. Who do we see first? Vita. And then... Monty steps into the shot. Right? And here's where things just go. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Pause for effect. And Mildred walks into the darkness. And look at how worried Monty is, but how defiant Vita is. And who is Mildred mad at? Watch the reverse shot. There. She's not mad at Monty. She's heartbroken. She's mad at Vita. And why did Vita do this? Did she want Monty? Or did she just want to get back at her mother? And Monty is just a way to do it. Notice Mildred doesn't step into the light, so she's still hiding. Why is she hiding? What is she hiding from? Does she try to shoot Monty? That's not who she was going to kill. And Monty knows that and stops her. Mildred was going to shoot Vida and Monty stops her. Now, why would Mildred want to shoot her own daughter? because she's in love with her and she can't face it so she leaves and that's Mildred Pierce in a lonely place double indemnity maybe it's the bleak ending that really stands apart June Sochin was this amazing author. She says it's, it's because it's a richly layered movie. It's a murder mystery. It's a portrayal of a woman bucking the traditional role of women. But at the same time, she's trying very hard to conform. And of course, it's not a very pretty look at American family and society's values. At a time, we think and we say that America was at its greatest, the victor over fascism. But if Mildred Pierce hadn't been so gritty or such a fool for her daughter, If Mildred Pierce hadn't cheated on her husband with another man, if Mildred had just swallowed her pride and helped her husband in his hour of need instead of chastising him, if she had cared to listen to her husband's advice, then everything would have been cookie-cutter fine, right as rain. It shows the absolute corrupting influence of American values. To want more. To want to be more. And how it can destroy you. And your family in the end if you're a woman. It's your fault. I am the way I am. So what have we learned here? What is this film? It looks like deep down a piece of social control. What happens when Mildred divorced Bert? She lost her daughter. What happened when she turned on Monty? She lost her restaurant. Women are to be devoted, but not possessive. And although American women saw the hypocrisy in Mildred Pierce, they never did question a culture, on a mass scale at least, that restricted their life to mothering. So the message here is stay in the preordained domain. Now, much like her mother, Joan Crawford ran through a series of men. She was married, most famously, to Douglas Fairbanks Jr. for five years. They divorced in 1934, and she married the actor Fanchon Tone the next year, divorcing in 1939. Then she married Philip Terry in 1942, but that didn't last four years. She then married Alfred Steele in 1956, and he died in 1959, and she never knew, never remarried. This movie was hugely influential. Not just in filmmaking, but in society. I read a footnote that said that Americans between 1942 and 1945 spent 23% of their total recreation dollar on the movies. Think about that. In 1969, it would be 3%. This is how powerful Hollywood was in 1945, and if you think, well, this is interesting, but it doesn't mean much, think again. The overwhelming majority of Americans are in theaters, not once, not twice, but multiple times a week. They go to the movies more than they go to the church. They spend more time there. They spend more money there. Some of them pray more there. Escape there. Hope there. Hide there. Live there. A woman needs a man. Any man. Even Bert, who is weak, is better than no man. He's strong enough to help Mildred walk out of that police station. So the whole point of this final shot is to reassure everyone that everything is going to be okay because the woman is going to be put back in her place. Thanks for hanging out with me while we watch Mildred Pierce. I hope you found this interesting whether you watched the commentary on in your home or just listened in your car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me my podcast, my books, and my blog at www.thatdellanddavis.com. The Super 70 podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Roslyn McPhail and Joshua Cunningham. You can reach them both on soundcloud.com. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdyllandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at thatdyllandavis and find my books on amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time in the lovely town of Santa Mira.